This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this to this Bible line in this brand new year. We're so glad that you can join us. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 FM, uh, either through the net or locally, uh, we're so glad you can join us. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions from God's Word. Sometimes there's a particular issue that you're wrestling with and you want biblical counsel or a text of Scripture you're trying to understand in terms of its original intention and application for today. Well, if we can be of help, there's many ways in which you can contact us. Many people email us here directly into the studio, and that email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. You can call us on the uh, 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that 843 number is 525-1859, toll-free, 877, the call letters WAGP 980. Uh, when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We do give preference to live callers, and many times people, someone just asked me a few days ago, and they said, I've got a question, but I can't always listen at that time I'm at work. Well, send it in, and when it's answered, sometimes it takes a couple months because so many questions come. Uh, you'll be emailed, and you can listen to the uh, audio file with your answer. All right, with that said, Walter, let's go ahead and get started this morning. All right, good morning, Pastor Cole. Our first question comes from Joanne out of Bluffton, South Carolina, and she writes, I asked Alexa, what is the meaning of Christmas? She responded that Christmas is an annual celebration commemorating the birth of Jesus Christ. Western churches celebrated on December 25th, a date thought to be tied to the winter solstice. The holiday fell out, of fa fell out of favor in Europe and America in the 17th century, but was reinvented in the 19th century by writers like Washington Irving and molded by immigrant traditions. It became the celebration that we know today. Would you please give a more truthful understanding of what Alexa said about Christmas for me? Thank you. Well, Alexa, you know, can be right on some things and limited. Obviously, artificial intelligence is going to various websites and drawing from that. Uh, the challenge down the road will be when there's less and less hard copies and books and people just rely on uh, these Internet resources because sometimes the things that they say are just so far from being accurate. Now, with this particular date, December the 25th, it's always been a point of debate a point of controversy. It's not a newly invented date. We have a populace of Rome uh, committed Christian around 325. He writes definitively to say that the date on which Christ was born was December the 25th. Uh, Chrysostom, he was a famous preacher uh, trying to do expository preaching. Uh, he's known pretty well because he wrote a lot in a lot of his writings have come down to us, and you can read some of his sermons 
He preaches uh, around 375. He's uh, about 40 years old and by that time, and he sets the date as December the 25th. Uh, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, he argued that Christ was born on December the 25th because there was a tradition that said, and traditions are what they are, traditions. And unless a tradition is basically codified by God as truth, there were Jewish traditions uh, in places that were passed down from century to century. And unless God quoted it as authoritative, then that's all it is, is a tradition. So we have to be careful here. But he argued that the tradition of the early church was that Christ was conceived on Passover, which would have been in March, which would have brought you to December the 25th, and that he also died on Passover. Now, we know he died on Passover. We don't know that he was conceived on Passover. And so that was the argument for December the 25th. Some argued December 25th in that they said that uh, the creation of the world took place in March, according to Jewish tradition. And again, that's what it is, Jewish tradition. And therefore, the creator God took on our humanity on the same date he created the world. Well, you know, it's interesting. A more popular view in the recent decades is that uh, Christians took a festival, a pagan festival in Rome, and turned it upside down. It was a drunken festival. It was a festival where there was uh, not only drunkenness, but gross sexual immorality. And the two, as Scripture affirms, often go together. And so to offer an alternative, because they would have parties, they would exchange gifts, uh, they said that, uh, this was the day that Christ was born, or at least that we're going to celebrate it. Some have said, well, it couldn't have occurred in December because shepherds wouldn't been out in the fields at night watching their sheep in a cold Judean winter. That's actually not true. That's not even close to being true. And there's historical evidence that actually documents that the shepherds would be out in the fields raising the Passover lambs outside of Bethlehem during that time of year. Bottom line is we cannot pinpoint the date. Now, we can say definitively, dogmatically, that Christ was uh, born when Herod the Great was still alive, and Herod the Great dies in 4 B.C., so he could have been born in that year, or 5 B.C., or 6 B.C. Uh, again, you say, I thought he was born in year zero. That was a whole calendar thing, which, which is a whole other subject in itself. So we can say by the time he was born, uh, and there are a lot of details, obviously, we've just celebrated Christmas that God chose to reveal to us about these shepherds, about wise men, about um, the way he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, how he's laid in a manger. And God gave us those details, obviously, to underscore his humility and his nature. And um, But what we can say definitively is what God has revealed. We can't be dogmatic on the day. Now, as the Washington Irving, most of us know him because it used to be required le- reading anyway when I was in high school, The Legend of the Sleepy Hollow in most literature classes. And uh, again, he was a, a man who was somewhat disgusted by what Christmas had become. There was excessive uh, drinking and brawls and fighting. And so he wanted to bring some civility back to it. And there have been times, certainly in the history of the church, where people have been opposed to celebrating Christmas, largely due to the fact that it was celebrated with gross excesses and the Lord's name and birth that people said they were celebrating 
seemingly was dismissed. Uh, some of the reformers celebrated Christmas. Some said, well, it's not commanded in Scripture to celebrate the Incarnation, so we shouldn't. Um, look, I see it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And so people still will often come to church at Christmas and at Easter. That's, that's beginning to change in America, but there's still an open door of opportunity for discussion and outreach. I was just um, in the Florence County area a few days ago. In fact, yesterday I spoke to some men, and they were taking down a living nativity scene. It's a small church. They're struggling to keep their head above water, and they were excited because they had over 200 families that came and visited their living nativity. Uh, one gentleman said, well, I'm 72, and I'm the youngest member of the church. And sadly, that is what's happening across America because we're not reaching the next generation. But they saw this as an opportunity. Maybe we can reach some young families. So my hat was off to them. And uh, so, again, I don't hate Christmas. I love Christmas. I see it as an opportunity to uh, speak about the incarnation because from the cradle we go to the cross and someday he'll come back with his crown and he'll rule as Lord of Lords and King of Kings and the governments of this world or rest upon his shoulders? Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning on the Bible line. Our next question comes from Kelly out of Rinkin, Georgia. She writes, how should I answer people who ask about tattoos and body piercings? Is there a difference between the Old and New Covenant with regard to these? I see some Christians who have them, and I wonder why. Well, uh, I've just turned to the book of Leviticus, Kelly, and this is an interesting chapter of Scripture. And there are certainly things that are found in the Mosaic Law that are part of the ceremonial law, some, that, some things that are part of the, the moral law of God, uh, and you have to very carefully sort through them. Those things that are part of the ceremonial law typically were used to either distinguish the people of Israel to make them a separate people— uh, you know, you go, say, to the Amish country, and they're certainly distinguished by some of the lifestyle um, choices that they have made. And God had the Jewish people have some lifestyle choices, not always for moral reasons, but to set them apart because they were to be a light to the Gentiles. Now, people will debate whether or not this is part of the ceremonial law or part of the moral law of God. And, and let me say, obviously, in this whole section of Scripture, there are many things that uh, are part of the moral law of God. For instance, two verses before, it said, you shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divina divination or soothsaying. That's all moral law, because the book of Acts echoes the whole aspect of, of eating blood, drinking blood, is something that is still forbidden and so the Jerusalem Council, they continued to forbid that um, because of the sacredness of blood. He's not talking about eating a rare steak, you know, or anything like that, but, but drinking blood. And then he talks about um, here in verse 28, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. And then the next verse says, you shall not profane your daughter by making her a harlot. Uh, so clearly, there's a lot of moral aspects here. And when I think about tattoos, it, it's interesting. The early church fathers and historians said that Christians should not tattoo the body. 
And that was the universal consensus. Even all the Protestant reformers taught that. You can't find a single Protestant reformer who would argue that it's okay or encourage you to have a tattoo. Um, There used to be a slogan when I was a young boy where we said, well, not everyone who has a tattoo is in prison, but everyone who's in prison has a tattoo because there was a certain deviant lifestyle that was often associated with tattoos, but not anymore. I mean, there's doctors, lawyers, educators, even pastors who will get tattoos. Um, Though I will say that many people who get tattoos, they're often associated with sensuality, with sexual immorality, uh, with living a lifestyle independently of the Lord. And sometimes I've seen, you know, young men and women, and all of a sudden they have a tattoo and all of a sudden, in that same time frame, they've been involved in an illicit lifestyle. They've given away their virginity to someone to whom they were not married. Now, I'm not trying to be squishy on this issue by any means, but let me just say, once you get a tattoo, it's pretty hard to dispose of. And as a pastor, you know, most every week we have someone to baptize, uh, sometimes several. We baptize four on Sunday between the two services, and I see ink almost every week. Um, when I went into the ministry in the 1970s, about 5% of people had tattoos. About a decade ago, I just looked out of curiosity because we started getting more tattoo questions on the Bible line, and about 15% of people have tattoos. I don't know what it is today. Walt, can you Google that and just type into Google what percentage of Americans have tattoos and see what it comes up with? I'm sure because it seems to be growing exponentially. What does it say? Uh, 32%, Pastor Carl. Okay, so 32% of Americans supposedly now brandish a tattoo of some kind. Now, some people would say, well, it's being all things to all men that I might reach some. But I would say that that argument is certainly a one-way street. Um, Let me turn to the passage that is often used as a biblical justification. And and let me just say parenthetically, I think all Christians would agree that some tattoos are definitely out of line. If you have some naked woman on your arm, you'd say, well, that certainly is not fitting for a believer. Somebody might say, well, I have a cross on my arm. Okay, well, um, let me just read from 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And so some would say I have a tattoo so that I can win people with tattoos. Well, that's a one-way street. It's a one-way street for the simple reason that there would be some people who have preconceived notions that if you have a tattoo, you're a certain kind of person that they don't want to listen to. And so then you eliminate, well, if this statistic is correct that uh, we just heard from Walter, then that would mean potentially in the 70% of the people who don't have tattoos, maybe within that category, there would be some who wouldn't listen to you by the fact that you do 
brandish a tattoo. So the argument is a one-way street, whereas if you don't have a tattoo, uh, you're not limited. So let me just step back because, again, as a pastor, I see tattoos every week, new believers coming into the church, people I'm baptizing. Uh, We're not against people with tattoos. Uh, It is difficult if you have a tattoo that calls attention to yourself because then you're in violation of 1 Timothy 2. You're not to call attention to yourself by, say, for instance, he argues there with the way a woman dresses. Uh, She's not only to dress uh, in a way that's God-honoring, where it's not seductive, but she's to dress modestly and discreetly. And the word discreetly that's used is a word that you don't see her walking to the church where it may be modest, but it's not discreet. Like, woo, wow, look, look what she's wearing, where that's calling attention to yourself. And we're not there to call attention to ourselves when we join together corporately in worship. We're there to call attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. So some things you can't get rid of, and I have had people over the years in my office who, you know, are saddened by the fact that they have a tattoo. And I said, well, look, just use it as a reminder. Use it as a reminder of what God saved you from, because most of the stories, there's a backstory behind the tattoo is associated with a lifestyle often of immorality, which was the context in which the tattoo was put on the body. Even, um, Walt, you're, you're a Marine. You, um, they have restrictions. My son has told me on tattoos, what, you can't have them on your face, or what, what's the policy? Or? I believe it's uh, on the neckline, Pastor Carl, on the face, and it, your, your hand has to be able to cover it. Okay. Uh, that, you know, that was a while ago when I was in, but there are restrictions, in the, even in the Marine Corps. And so that's so that I'm assuming there's a certain discipline that's promoted uh, that, again, you're not distracting your fellow Marines and the whole process of what you're called to do to be effective for the nation. And Correct. Just being, uh, being presentable and uh, how you look in your uniform and not to take away from what you look like as a United States Marine and a service member. You right. don't want to distract from your Marine, not your tattoos. Got you. So. Yeah. Again, this is a, a question that would come up, and some people will say, well, to even mention it is to be legalistic. Well, you better be careful before you come to that conclusion because the verse right before it, or two verses before it, say you don't drink blood, you don't practice divination. The next verse says you don't round off the side gross of your head um, because, again, that, that was symbolic of worshiping uh, the planets above. Uh, the verse after the one on tattoos is you don't give your your body, your your wife over to, your daughters over to harlotry. And then he goes on about, you know, spiritus and this whole section about not laying with an animal, not sleeping with someone of the same sex. And so you got to be careful before you make that jump. Oh, this is just part of the ceremonial law and it has no effect. And what I would say is most disturbing to me today about tattoos is not those that have them, but those who, as parents, have brandished tattoos on their little children. I I just think that's a mistake. Um, I've seen it even on one-year-olds in some places that I've traveled, and I think, you know, this child's going to grow up, and they may not want that tattoo, or a child that maybe is 10 or 11, and they want a tattoo like dad, and they may not have the wisdom to really decide what they want. So, 
to me, that's a bigger issue. Anyway, we could spend a lot more time on it, and it comes up on occasion, but I hope that's helpful to this person from Rinkin. Let's go to the next uh, question. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. We're going to go to the phone lines. Pastor Carl, I believe we have Pierre from Beaufort, South Carolina. Good morning, Pierre. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Hi, good morning. Um, We're going to the Garden of Eden, and God uh, placed Adam there, as we all know, and God commanded Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, Satan, uh, excuse me, Eve comes on the scene, and Satan is tempting her, and Satan quotes God's command to Adam. I want to know how Satan heard what God had told Adam, where uh, there was no sin yet in the world. Does that make sense? Of course, yeah. So um, understand that the angels were created before man. Uh, The Scripture affirms, for instance, in the book of Job, that the angels sang. I heard a preacher say, well, angels don't sing. Well, he was wrong, and we don't know that the angels say when they appeared to the shepherds sang. That was his point. But he said angels don't sing. Well, actually, they did sing at the creation of the world. Job records it for us. So angels were in existence before man was. In fact, uh, Satan himself was in the Garden of Eden. How do we know that? Well, because the prophet tells us. Remember the fall of Satan. There's two critical passages, Isaiah 14, and 14 times 2 is 28, Ezekiel 28. In both cases, it deals with an immediate situation, and then that illustrates a later, uh, a former situation. And so, for instance, we read in Ezekiel 28, and these are two central passages, by the way, that deal with the fall of Satan. How did the devil become the devil? Um, the, the, the word that is um, uh, in the King James, Lucifer, is a term when translated in terms of the meaning of the word Lucifer, it means morning star. So you'll read both in various English texts of uh, the scripture, whether you interpret the name or just write the name. But in those two central passages, you find the fall of Satan. And so, for instance, in Ezekiel, I just turned there, it says, speaking of uh, this one, the evil one who fell, the one who was Lucifer, the morning star that became Satan, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And he goes on and describes him as this anointed cherub of God. So he was present. How did he know what God said to Adam? Because he heard it. Uh, that's as simple an answer as I can give you. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Kelvin out of Buchanan, Virginia. Pastor Carl, he writes, Is it sinful to pledge allegiance to the flag, and why do some Christians liken this to idolatry? Well, um, they use a passage, and I'm turning there right now from... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's uh, I think it's a, a text that's used out of context, and sometimes if you take a verse out of its context, you can make the Bible mean a lot of things. So let me just pause and address some definitions here. When, when we say the word pledge, it simply means a promise, and there's nothing wrong with making a promise. When, when a couple gets married, they exchange pledges. They exchange vows. They exchange promises, and they'll say, you know, I promise you my faithfulness. Uh, And they used to say when I was uh, a young man, 
I plight thee my troth. We don't say that anymore, but uh, if we use traditional vows, we might say, I promise you, a plight is a promise or a pledge. I solemnly pledge thee, or an archaic term for you, my troth or my faithfulness. So it's a solemn promise to another person. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, That's really what marriage is. It's a public commitment to live a separated life as a couple uh, in what we would call holy matrimony. And so when a witness stands in a courtroom, he promises to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help him God. That's a promise that he is making. Um, And so when we pledge allegiance to the flag, uh, a flag is simply symbolic of the nation to whom you are promising your allegiance. Is it wrong to promise allegiance to a nation? Certainly not. Why? Because Acts 17 indicates that God is the one who formed nations. He created the boundaries. And sadly, we're living in a nation right now where there is seemingly no boundary. And millions of people have come in through our southern border, and now some are coming through the northern border. And we're talking about 152 nations of the world. And if the stats that I heard last week were correct, the principal nations, you think, oh, Mexico, actually, Venezuela is number one, Russia is number two, China is number three, and Iran is number four. And those are the people whom we know of that didn't slip over the border without getting caught. So there's nothing wrong with having a nation. Uh, And so to pledge one's allegiance to a country is basically to promise that you are going to recognize that nation's rule. And God doesn't, you know, speak against nations and against government. In fact, God established three institutions. He established the family, he established the government, and he established the church. And so you don't want to live in a nation without government because one of the functions of government is they are a minister of God uh, to put down evil and to put up good. And so to pledge one's allegiance to a country is basically to subject yourself to that country's rule, to promise to abide by its laws. And that's what we ask people to do when they become you know, citizens, uh, that they're pledging their allegiance to the um, Constitution of the United States of America. And Paul the Apostle taught that we should be a good citizen. I've turned here to Titus 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Peter will say, look, honor all people, love the brotherhood, uh, fear the Lord. And then he'll say, honor the king. Now, there is an exception to that, obviously. You find an example in Acts 5. I have a sermon on God, governments, and guns. And in that, I walk through when it is proper to disobey a nation. And that is if the nation asks you to do something that's in defiance of a higher authority, namely God's. So the apostles in Acts 5.29 said, we must obey God rather than men. But Jesus plainly said when asked about taxes— Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. He is recognizing that civil governments play an important role. You don't want to live in a nation where there's not a government that is carrying out its function to put down evil and to praise good. Sadly, uh, there are some evil people in the world and some who have been involved in uh, those 
states where district attorneys are not appointed, but they run for the office. And a lot of people like George Soros have put up a lot of money to get people into office who will basically not do what the government says or what God says a government is to function as. And that's sad. Um, And so you have more and more lawlessness because the government's just looking the other way like they don't care. Oh, you can steal up to $1,000 in some states, and it's only a misdemeanor. And, um, you know, this is, this is a problem that we have. But the verse that's often used, and Jehovah's Witness love to use this, and I've turned here to Matthew 5. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And there it says, Jesus is speaking. He says, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. And if you know the context, he's talking about making a flippant oath. And so letting Scripture interpret Scripture, he's not forbidding all oath-taking. God himself, in Hebrews 6, because he can swear by no one greater than himself, swears by himself. He does the same thing in Isaiah, the 45th chapter. Paul makes a promise. He makes an oath in Acts chapter 18. And so pledging loyalty to a nation is not the same even as taking an oath, because in one sense, a, a pledge by definition, is a solemn promise where an oath carries a little extra weight, a little more punch and steel to it, and that it's an appeal to God. But I would say pledging allegiance to the flag is actually helping to obey what God calls you to, assuming the flag represents that nation and without violating God-honoring principles. Now, obviously, the Nazi flag, the swastika, um, represented an evil nation that was... uh, elevating the Aryan race and and demoting other races, especially Jewish people, to the point where they wanted them exterminated. But our flag doesn't stand for that. And so Paul says in Romans 13 and verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and then he'll say honor to whom honor. So we are to honor the king, as Peter said. We're to show honor to our politicians. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak out against the evil that they may, uh, you know, wave in front of our faces. But without disrespecting the office, we still need to speak on the moral issues. So a pledge of allegiance to the flag is simply a way of honoring, respecting our country. And that is something we're commanded to do. So there's nothing in Scripture that would forbid the pledging of allegiance to the flag. In fact, if there's anything in Scripture, it would say just the opposite. If you have some Christian who's obstinate and says, well, I won't pledge allegiance to the flag, he's basically saying, I'm dishonoring the country that I'm a part of. And he's not to do that, again, unless that country is asking you to do something that God forbids, not to mention your dishonoring all the people who went before you, sometimes at the highest cost possible of giving their lives uh, so that you can enjoy the freedom where you can even say things like that. Um, So this is something that comes out of Jehovah's Witness. It's a false cultist religion. Um, And sadly, some evangelical Christians have picked up on it under the guise of spirituality, but if anything, they're, they're breaking the tenor and the spirit of Holy Scripture. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line, 
Our next question comes in as a live dictation from Kay out of Beaufort, South Carolina, and she writes, What do you know about the Maryland Bible College affiliated with Greater Grace World Outreach and was founded by Charles H. Stevens, Jr.? Someone we know studied online with that college while he was in prison in Baltimore, Maryland. Apparently, the college is King James only, and they use many books such as uh, commentaries with contributions from Edward Dobson, Charles Feinberg, Edward Henson, and many others. Big concern with this person is that they are not only they are not loving even towards his wife. So even his wife believes that he was involved with a cult or Bible, uh, cult Bible group once he was released from prison in June. But by September 27th, she had to get him out of her house because of his hatred and anger. I am once again developing a relationship with her. So, of course, this is challenging when she is not a believer. Thank you. Well, um, one of the books that are mentioned is actually a good book. Um, I I can't speak to some of these others. um, But let me just say that if this is the same Charles Stevens who was involved up in the state of Maine, and I don't know, obviously that Charles Stevens is dead. but if these are some of his followers, uh, then it's not a good group. Uh, there was a large cult in the state of Maine in the 80s that was led by a guy named Carl Stevens. You say Carl H. Stevens. I don't know if it's the same gentleman. But I would say as a general principle, you shall know them by their fruit. And if uh, his study of this particular group only made him angry towards his wife instead of sacrificially loving her and understanding her, then whatever it's done, it, it's not a good expression of what you'd want to see happen. So there is a, a Charles Feinberg. Now, this says Charles L. Feinberg. I don't know if it's the same one. Um, so, again, you've put the middle initials here, but if this is the same Carl Stevens who was engaged in the cult in the state of Maine, then it's really evil. And it is a cult online with Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. But the fact that this prisoner is not being helped uh, by it is should raise some red flags, but it might also indicate that there are some uh, legitimate uh, searching that he's doing in his heart. And so if I knew this particular gentleman, I would research it. I would find out, well, what are the doctrines that they're teaching? I would look into the world, greater world out, greater grace world outreach. I'd find out what their doctrinal statement is, and then I would compare the doctrinal statement with what Scripture says. If it's in alignment, then the problem would not be with the organization. The problem would be with this individual. So that's where you start, because there are endless cults. There are endless cults. You know, I, I think it's interesting. We think of the Secret Service largely as the people who protect the president and other key uh, leaders in the United States. But actually, their principal responsibility deals with faulty money. Uh, Their protection of the president and certain politicians actually make up a much smaller portion of their overall job description. Most of the people who are in the Secret Service are engaged in the process of protecting our currency. And when they used to train someone in the Secret Service, there were so many faulty kinds of currency. What they trained them with was the real currency. And they knew the real currency so well. It's a texture in their fingers, the color of the ink, um, the feel, everything, the smell. 
such that when there was a false bill that they were to make a decision over, they could almost immediately tell this is a fake. And sometimes we can spend all this time studying endless cults, and they are endless, and they're propping up all the time. And this is what Jesus said would happen. Uh, He said, just as there's a sower who goes out and sows good seed, there's the evil one who sows his false seed. They're in the parable of, of the kingdom in Matthew 13. And so they're endless, and they have been endless, and they're only going to grow and multiply as we approach the end of the age. And so what's important is for people to know the real thing. So again, I would go to the doctrinal statement of this organization, and if you're doctrinally sound, then you ought to be able to read it and say, no, this is right, this is right, this is wrong, this is wrong. And remember, many times these cults will say a lot of true things. Because that's the way the devil functions. He operates as an angel of light. He wants to look uh, Christian. But you sometimes have to just poke around just a little bit to make sure that the orthodoxy is true and true. We're not talking about secondary issues. There's a lot of things you can be wrong on and still go to heaven on. But there are other things that you cannot be wrong on and be counted as a true Christian. All right, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from James out of Beaufort, South Carolina, and he writes, I have a question to help me prepare for some teaching that I will be doing starting this March. What are the top three or five commentators or more that you have favored in the past for a study such as uh, passages like Ephesians 1 Romans and Romans 9 through 11 and what authors or articles you might suggest for topics on predestination and election. Well, I might even encourage you to consider, James, uh, going to my series on the book of Romans because I carefully exegete every single word, every single verse in 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. The theme there of Romans 9, 10, and 11 concern Israel's election in the ninth chapter, Israel's rejection in the 10th chapter, and Israel's restoration in the 11th chapter. Now, there are people who look at those same three chapters of Scripture through a different lens, but they start with a premise, and the premise, very simple, is that God has replaced Israel with the church. And so you have men who come out of the Reformation, like John Calvin, like Martin Luther, and I'm grateful for the areas in which they were you know, sound in, but there are many things in which they were quite unsound in. And that should cause you to, like, question, if they're wrong over here, could they be wrong somewhere else? And and that's an important question to ask. So when you read, like, Luther and Calvin, in some of the statements, for instance, that they made uh, concerning, uh, a, you know, the, the Jewish people, wow. Now, where did they get it? Well, you have a guy by the name of Augustine, and he's one of the late church fathers. And Augustine was influenced by a gentleman who said, look, if you speak too much about Israel someday having a kingdom, you might be viewed as someone who's against our king. And so people, I think sometimes to avoid persecution— They softened the message, and they quickly adopted what we would call today supersessionism, or the popular term is replacement theology. And so this is a a theology that basically says the church has replaced Israel. So if you start on that premise when you come to Romans 9, 
then you don't see uh, two nations are in your womb. When it says, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. When we go back, that's a quote from Malachi, and Malachi is referencing Genesis, where, um, you know, you have two young men, twins, in the womb, and God selects one twin over the other, Jacob over Esau. So again, uh, I would start maybe with my series on 9, 10, and 11 because I'm going to quote many other authors who see it differently, and then you might uh, you know, want to run down that road a little bit further. Uh, I will say that if you went in my library uh, this morning, I have about 100 commentaries on Romans. Uh, which one is the best? Um, the best that I could recommend probably won't do you any good unless you know Greek. And if you know Greek, write me back and I'll say, okay, here's uh, three that you should really read because they're interacting very carefully with the Greek New Testament. They're what we call critical commentaries. They're not criticizing Scripture, but they're critically interacting with the original language. And so uh, those are the most helpful uh, there are certainly popular commentaries that might be useful to you. I often suggest to people uh, two books, or really two types of books for their library, two, a two-volume series called The Bible Knowledge Commentary, and that was done by Dallas Theological Seminary in the 1980s, and it deals with not just the obvious, but with more uh, difficult passages of Scripture but at the end of each book of the Bible that they address, there's a bibliography of suggested conservative works. Another work would be Warren Wearsby. He used to have a two-volume series um, on the New Testament. I just bought a copy for someone as a gift over Christmas. A single, they took the two volumes and packed it into one. And I think he also has four volumes on the Old Testament. But Wearsby's work would be very, very useful to you, I think. Um, on Ephesians, John R. W. Stott might be helpful to you. Uh, he's an Anglican, so he's going to see some things through an Anglican lens, but I think he's overall a healthy uh, author and will give you a lot of helpful exegesis. Um, but again, I would read Stott because you get a, a picture of replacement theology. And so while he'll say a lot of good things, you'll also understand replacement theology and how they are coming to these conclusions. So what drives the ship? So if you don't see any future for Israel, then the way you read Romans 9, 10, and 11 is going to influence your whole view of it. Um, MacArthur, uh, he's more Calvinistic than I am on those three chapters, um, but still he is a dispensationalist. That is, he makes a distinction between Israel and the church, and that will be helpful to you uh, when it comes to, um, you know, reading that section of Scripture. So that's where I would start, um, and let me know how it goes. But look, I, I've walked through these. I've spent several hundred hours on those three chapters of Scripture. <laughs> and I'm going to cross-reference it. I'm going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Remember, all a commentary is is how someone understands the text of Scripture. And so someday I might put my work into writing. I don't know. I'm so uh, disappointed with uh, the current Christian publishers. They seem to have no integrity, and it's, and it's really, really sad what, what they've done. 
Um, but anyway, uh, I hope that's helpful. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Rick out of Beaufort, South Carolina, and he writes, can you talk about the conflict in Israel and how it relates to the scriptures? Also, since you have made many trips to that region, can you give us a sense of what is happening there? Yeah, so uh, I've been in regular communication with a person who lives in Jerusalem, and uh, not just folks in Jerusalem, but some who uh, live in other parts of Israel. In fact, we have a Messianic Jew who's, I think, one of the uh, chief uh, Jewish scholars who's alive today who will be coming to Community Bible Church in, in April. He lives in Netanya which is actually when we go to Israel, that's where we always spend our, our first night. And so people will have a chance to hear firsthand. And there's a strong possibility coming up here soon on a Wednesday night, we'll be uh, interviewing someone who's closely associated with the IDF. He's, he's not a believer, but he will give you a flavor of what is happening in Israel. And by the way, if you don't have a church, you should consider maybe coming to Community Bible Church. We're here in Beaufort. We have folks who come from Bluffton, Hilton Head, uh, Yemassee, Dottaw, Fripp, uh, a lot of folks who drive an hour away because it's hard to find a church that verse by verse exposits the Scripture. But it comes down to how do you view what's happening in Israel? There's a lot of people who have no answer. They have no answer because they believe the church has replaced Israel. They just see it as another war. It's not just another war. What is actually happening is a setup for what is going to happen. And I hope to address this before too long on a Sunday morning and do an entire message on it. But let me just uh, dust your mind off with a a few important passages of Scripture from the prophet Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah in the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th chapter is looking largely uh, futuristically at things that are going to happen. And by the way, the prophecies that Zechariah records in his uh, short little 12-chapter or 14-chapter book uh, concerning the first coming were all literally fulfilled. Uh, It speaks to the fact that there would be uh, a Messiah who would come into Jerusalem, the Messiah, on a donkey. Hmm, That's interesting. How is that fulfilled? Literally. It speaks of one of his followers as betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. Huh. I wonder how that was fulfilled, literally. It speaks of the shepherd being struck down and the followers fleeing. How is that fulfilled, literally? It speaks of uh, the Messiah being pierced through for our iniquities, which John quotes as being fulfilled with Jesus there on the cross. That was literally fulfilled. So for us to come to the 12th, 13th, and 14th chapters of Zechariah and to think that God is going to fulfill them differently is foolish. But again, if you start with the premise that God is done with Israel, you'll come to those false conclusions. And again, that comes largely out of Roman Catholicism. The seeds were uh, fed through men like Augustine, as I mentioned on the last question, but they were really cemented through the Roman Catholic Church where they said the new Israel is Rome. Now, those who were converted out of Roman Catholicism, guys like Calvin and Luther, they said, well, it's not the Roman church that's the new Israel. It's born-again Christians who are the new Israel. Okay, well, good. That, that, that's great. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad they, uh, they, they saw that born-again Christians are different from 
uh, the Roman church, but the church is not the new Israel. And that's why, sadly, you had guys like Calvin who said some very hateful things. Listen to what Augustine said about the Jews. How hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, the Jews, with your two-edged sword. Well, that's real loving, Augustine. Thank you so much uh, for those kind, thoughtful words concerning the Jewish people. Here's what John Calvin wrote. The Jews are a rotten and unbending people whose obstinance deserves that they be oppressed without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Thank you, John Calvin, in your work, response to questions and objections of a certain Jew. That's disgusting. Listen to what Martin Luther wrote. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews since they live among us? We know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing. We cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share their lives. First, their synagogue should be set on fire, and he goes and details it. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. Then he details it. Third, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourth, their rabbis must be forbidden under the threat of death to teach anyone. Fifth, their passports and traveling privileges should be f- taken away, and so on. Um, look, this is, he, he says, to sum it up, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. That's pathetic. But you, again, if you start with this premise, and these guys are coming out of Roman Catholicism, they just put a different spin on it. And so when you look at commentaries on Romans 9, 10, and 11, you want to ask, are they supersessionists or are they dispensational? Do they believe there's a future for Israel? That's going to influence largely how they interpret those three passages of Scripture. So here in Zechariah, because God's not done with Israel, In fact, when you read Moses, Moses is clear in Deuteronomy 4. He restates it in Deuteronomy 28 that the Jews are going to be scattered to the ends of the world. But then he says at the end of time, in the latter days, God will bring them back. Hmm, That's interesting. Uh, Jesus said in Luke's gospel that the Jews are going to be scattered to all the nations of the world. That happened starting in 70 A.D., But then he goes on in the Olivet Discourse, and he preaches a sermon that demands that they be back in the land for the final prophetic schedule to unfold. Oh, wow. So you see, to say the church has replaced Israel, you have a real problem. And so here in Zechariah, because the Jews are back in the land, because God is going to fulfill the prophetic schedule for Christ's return from heaven through the Jews, just as we just celebrated Last month that he used Israel to bring the first coming, he says, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And then he says, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it up will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. That's pretty clear. Is that going to be literally fulfilled? Yes, it will be. He'll say in the 14th chapter as a second example, Behold, his day is coming when the Lord will, the spoil will be taken and divided among you. 
And then he'll say, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations who will fight against you on that day of battle. And then he will go on to describe that the Messiah will stand on the Mount of Olives and he'll split it in two. Now, should we spiritualize those texts? Should we do what the amillennialist does and say, well, the next event is God's just going to sweep us all up into heaven and that's it? Or is God going to do precisely what he said? I can tell you what he's going to do. He's going to literally fulfill it. So, is there any significance to the war that's going on? There is in the sense that we're seeing this growing spirit of anti-Semitism that will find its final and fullest expression uh, during the time of the Great Tribulation. You know, during the Holocaust, there was a handful of nations that um, definitively opposed Israel to the point of establishing gas chambers on their property to properties to um, exterminate the Jews. And then there were many nations that were just complicit by their unwillingness to do anything or say anything, the United States included. Not anymore. Now you see the spirit of anti-Semitism, nations across the planet, objectively, definitively fighting against the Jewish people and what they stand for. This is just a smidgen of what's going to happen after the body of Christ is raptured and the great tribulation period unfolds. So it's important in that sense. Is this the war of Gog and Magog? Certainly not, but I think it could be setting the stage for what is in the future. Well, I think we're about out of time, but let me invite you, if you don't have a place to go tomorrow night to CBC University, uh, we'll ha be offering five classes tomorrow night. We'll meet in our major worship center at 6.30, and at 6.45, we have a place for your children, kids' choirs, and then five courses you can take. And we'll also be offering Meet the Pastor tomorrow night. This is for people who are looking for a church home. They come in, answer a couple questions from me so I can get to know them. And, uh, and then uh, they write down any questions that they would like to ask. It's important when you look for a church, you find out what they stand for and what are their core values. We have a brand new season of Awana starting this coming Sunday. And we invite you to it. What a great discipleship ministry to influence the hearts of children as they memorize not just the Scripture themselves, but the meaning of the Scripture contextually and otherwise. It's a fantastic uh, ministry uh, to children every Sunday night at 530. We also have a ministry for middle school and teenage students as well. Well, we're out of time, but we're so glad you could join us today for the Bible Line. This is always posted later in the day. If uh, you have a friend that you think would benefit by listening, and I hope you'll follow me on YouTube, search the scriptures on YouTube so that we can get God's word out there. You can also follow me at Carl Berge or search the scriptures uh, on X or Twitter. And that would be of help to us as we get God's word out in this new year. God bless you as you walk with Christ. Mm -hmm.